From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm Siri Belusu. I'm Amanda Icone. This week, we dive into the gig economy and how it's changing the tax landscape. American workers are cashing in on their side hustle, picking up small jobs through TaskRabbit or selling jewelry on Etsy. But they owe taxes on that work. And many of these self-employed workers are under-reporting their income to the IRS. It's contributing to an estimated $450 billion tax gap. The reporting issue is for these self-employed entrepreneurs, the gig workers. Those folks haven't given a lot of thought to what are all the tax obligations. Gig workers likely owe taxes to state and local government, too. In some cases, a lack of tax education contributes to the under-reporting. But conflicting and outdated state and federal laws also make compliance more complicated for workers and the platforms they use to connect with customers. Annette Nellen, professor at San Jose State University. Gig just means I got a a job. This is really the same as independent contractors, uh, freelancers. There's a variety of terms that are used for folks who are basically self-employed. Gig economy platforms such as Uber, TaskRabbit, Lyft, that will help you find a gig. So these platform companies will say, we're providing the approach for you to use this tool to connect to find somebody who wants your services. Your driver will help you connect and will process the payment there. The idea is that these people are working, they're earning income. When you earn income, you have to pay taxes on that income. What's the problem here? With these platforms, it's very easy to all of a sudden become, oh, I'm going to be a task rabbiter, I'm going to be a gig driver, I'm going to be a Amazon Mechanical Turk. Because basically you go to the platform, say, yes, I'd like to provide services. And within 24 hours, you might be providing services. So you haven't really given much thought to, oh, do I have tax consequences? Should I set up a separate bank account for how this goes? How will I even actually get the payment? How much will I get paid? What's my business plan? Whereas if you were instead thinking, I'm going to open a restaurant, you would have done a lot of work and even figuring out where to, to locate your restaurant, who might be your clientele. And along the way, you probably had a chat with an attorney or, and or an accountant who probably did mention tax obligations to you. So you were better prepared for that. Where here, we've got a lot of folks all of a sudden becoming, maybe for the first time, a self-employed entrepreneur. And they might not even view themselves as a self-employed entrepreneur. They'd just be thinking, I need some cash. I can get some cash through this. And I got a car. It looks pretty easy. Uh, some folks, you talk to them, if you're a passenger, well, I have a full-time job. I just like doing this. I meet people. It gets me out. I can help pay my car payment and things. So those folks haven't given a lot of thought to what are all the tax obligations. And it's really not just your federal income tax, but these folks are going to owe self-employment tax. But that kicks in once they've earned more than $400, they're liable to self-employment tax, which could actually happen the first week on the job. They've got state income taxes, and with the local government, very likely they might owe a business license tax that they may never even heard of such a thing. But people like renting out their home via Airbnb or similar platforms, they might not have given any thought to you know the uh, state and local taxes that could include property taxes, transient occupancy tax. And the companies, I think, don't really want to push this information out to them because it's not their, their role. They're just the payment processor and the matcher of the service recipient and the service provider. 
my, my view is that the IRS should be pushing this information out to them. The timing is important, too, in terms of when they have to pay the taxes. For self-employed or contract or contingent workers, that timing is different. How that works is very different. Can you talk about that? When you're self-employed, you are responsible for all of your taxes, which means you need to be making estimated tax payments at the federal level. That's going to include both your federal income tax and your self-employment tax, which people might not have even been aware of. Of course, the self-employment tax rate is 15.3% because you're basically playing both the employer and the employee's share of what employment taxes would be. And then, of course, you have state income tax obligations as well, and those estimated payments would start uh, once you know you're going to owe more than a than a thousand, and then for you know self-employment, once you've earned more than four hundred dollars, you do owe uh, self-employment tax. And of course, it's far easier if they started that right away. Yeah, you need to get in this payment plan, but they might not even realize that until they go to do their tax return, realizing, oh, I haven't paid any tax in, because it's just difficult to get that information. Now, the IRS does have a sharing economy website. If if people even know to go and look for it, uh, I think there, there's something else needed. And then there are some changes that could be made that would push this tax information out to the uh, these new entrepreneurs. Because once you get them into the system, then they know every year, yeah, I got estimated tax payments due uh, four times a year. The W-9, the differences between the W-9 and the 1099. I wonder if you could talk about the differences in those two forms. And and there's been some talk that the threshold for issuing the 1099 is too high. Can you talk a little bit about those conversations? Uh, a, a W-9 would be kind of counterpart to a W-4. When an employee starts work, the employer says, would you please complete this W-4 because I need this information to do the withholding properly. Uh, the W-9 is where someone knows they're going to have to make payments, whether those payments are because someone's providing services to me, and if I pay them $600 or more, I'm required under Code Section 6041 to issue them a 1099 miscellaneous. For these gig platforms, they're viewed as, uh, even by the IRS has issued a few private letter rulings on this, they're viewed as third-party settlement organizations, which under a code section 6050W, they're issuing a 1099K, but as a third-party settlement organization, they only have to issue the 1099K if they have processed during a calendar year more than $20,000 of payments to that person and more than 200 transactions. So a lot of these gig workers, they might not cross one of those thresholds or both of them, and they will not get a 1099K from the platform company. Now, if that driver is doing something like uh, some of the platforms will say, hey, you know, sign up somebody, I'll give you a bonus. Well, at that point, they actually have done a service then for where their customer is really the platform company. And if the platform company gives them payments of $600 or more, they'd have to give them a 1099 miscellaneous. But most of these gig platform companies are only responsible for issuing a 1099K if those filing threshold, very high th filing thresholds are met, and often they aren't met. In fact, the um, majority of these gig workers do not get a 1099K and probably don't get a 1099 miscellaneous because they haven't done a service of $600 or more to the platform company. IRS data has shown for years that the uh, compliance rate, when you don't get no kind of information reporting, no W-2, no 1099 of any sort, the 
the filing, the compliance rates, I think a little less than 40% on that. In the last few years, there have been a few different legislative proposals. One was even called the, the GIG Act and was making a variety of changes. One example would be a proposal to change that threshold under the 6050W for the third-party settlement organizations down to just a flat $1,500. You pay somebody more than $1,500, you've got to issue that. And sometimes they, in a companion change, will bump up that $600 for the 1099 miscellaneous to $1,500. But I think it continues to be looked at. One thought that I would like to throw out is, why have such a high threshold at all on these? Because with technology today, where if those forms are filed digitally with the IRS, if they're provided to the taxpayer digitally, it'll just feed into the tax prep software. We don't have to keep a record on, oh, where did I do some work for somebody that was less than $1,500, so I didn't have to give me a 1099. I got to track that on my own and feed it into the software, where if it was all on a 1099, in all digital files, it would just grab it. That, that I think it's overlooked is that the technology continues to improve where the filing process for individuals could be far more streamlined if everything could just feed right into whatever uh, tax prep software you're using. Let's talk about the preparers, the companies who are hiring these workers. Where is the disconnect in terms of the reporting? Is it is it the companies aren't telling the IRS, oh, we paid all these people this much money, or is it all on the worker? The, the platform companies, certainly on, on their financial statements, their tax return, they'd be showing what payments were processed because their revenue is coming from the fee that they're taking from that gross amount that was charged for that trip or for the task, the gig that was was done. So I, I would assume they're properly reporting all of that. The reporting issue is for these self-employed entrepreneurs, the gig workers, that if they don't have one a reporting form and they don't keep very good records or don't even understand their tax obligations, they might not be doing their return correctly. And then, of course, there are many that probably do have a QuickBooks set up and maybe they have talked to somebody to help them get their records in order and, and, and even know what kinds of deductions they can claim against it. They have to think of themselves as self-employed. In other words, this is a business. They're making money off of it, and they need to take a little bit extra time to dot their I's and cross their T's and maybe get some additional deductions that they might not have been able to take advantage of otherwise. With the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, another big deduction that many of you are going to get would be the Qualified Business Income Deduction, or the 199 Cap A, uh, because most of these folks will be below the uh, – most – whether gig workers or not, but 80% of individuals are below these taxable income thresholds that are part of the 199 Cap A calculation, which does make the calculation a lot easier. And basically, it is going to be 20% of their uh, business income. could be a significant additional deduction. Plus, just getting guidance on, should I do the mileage rate, which is easy, or should I do the actual expense? And what other expenses do I have? You know, you get into the car and they offer you, you know, water or candy bar. Well, that's another expense that they've got of doing their their business. Does the 199A, and I was going to ask you about that, so I'm really glad you brought it up. Does 199A apply only if you're driving Uber full time? Or is that something that could apply to someone who's selling furniture on eBay part time and they have a full time job doing something else? The 199 Cap A qualified business income deduction would apply to 
to anybody other than a corporation that is uh, owns an interest in a business. And if they're actually the one working that sole proprietor business, well, if they're the sole proprietor, whether part-time or full-time, uh, they would get that on the earnings from the, the, the business. So they certainly should be uh, aware of that. But there was a report issued by TIG, the Treasury Inspector General, in February about the gig workers, and it was mainly focused on are they paying into self-employment tax. But in looking at all the, the data, they found that 25% of gig workers who got a 1099-K, 25% of them did not report on a Schedule C or any other income line. So even though they got the reporting form, 25% of them actually didn't report any of that. Now, that's, that's troubling. because So it's not just folks not getting a 1099 that aren't reporting. Even folks filing a 1040 for some reason aren't picking up that income, which they'd have deductions against that as well. And, of course, starting in 2018, they'd have this 199 cap, cap A deduction. So this is a matter of just the law just catching up with the realities of technology today and just the way workers and their employers, that interaction has changed as well. I think we've seen historically whenever there's a proposal to change uh, information reporting, there'll be concerns raised by maybe the issuers of these forms. Oh, you know, it's made it more complicated, plus we have to mail these forms to people. There's postage costs associated with that. So maybe the technology should allow that these could all be electronically filed. But of course, not everybody has access to technology, but they could be opting in or out to say, hey, I want to get my form electronically, and I'm agreeing, yes, you can send me this electronically. I think Congress should get a sense from companies today that have to issue these. What are the concerns you have of issuing these that would hold up us changing the threshold or broadening the amount? And I would encourage folks to look at it more broadly. Um, I'll mention to practitioners a lot that this can be a good thing. If we can lower the tax gap, then there's less need to say, oh, we need revenue. Why don't we just increase the tax rates on these compliant taxpayers? The tax gap is about $450 billion a year. That's a lot of money. Uh, We'll never collect all of it, but better reporting of more of that would help. And, of course, a lot of it's cash transactions. Uh, and I think technology might even be changing some of that where, you know, on a college campus, I rarely see a student pull cash out of their wallet to buy something. They're either got a, a debit card or they're using, you know, on something on their phone that that's all digital files. So maybe that'll have some improvement to the tax gap as well. But we should be looking at, we all benefit when the tax gap is reduced because, with the tax gap there, that means compliant taxpayers are funding that non-compliance. It's a cost to that because this affects all of us in either directly or indirectly. Thank you very much, Annette. I'm really glad you were able to join me today. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. And here's the week's top news. A mandatory tax and profit reporting bill that has languished in the European Commission could have renewed life as a result of this week's parliamentary elections. The European Green Party saw big election night gains, especially in Germany, which has blocked the reporting law over concerns that large companies like Volkswagen and Siemens could be forced to give up company secrets to competitors in Asia. 
The Green Party campaigned on a 10-point tax justice plan that also includes carbon taxes and a financial transactions tax. In the U.S., House Democrats are drafting legislation that would extend a package of expired temporary tax breaks known as extenders. An estate tax exemption would expire two years earlier to pay for the other tax breaks under the Democrats' plan. The IRS will soon start using private collection firms to go after businesses that owe taxes. The agency's private debt collection program was previously limited to individual taxpayers. The new program allows companies to collect tax debts on behalf of the government. In June, the IRS will start to refer about 200 business cases per week to private firms. Illinois voters will get to decide next fall whether the state's wealthiest residents should pay higher taxes. The Illinois House of Representatives passed a resolution that would permit voters to amend the state constitution, replacing the state's flat income tax with a graduated tax. The resolution specifies that the state institute a quote-unquote fair tax that applies lower rates on lower income levels and higher rates on higher income levels. The graduated tax is the centerpiece of Governor J.B. Pritzker's plan to stabilize Illinois' finances. The Senate previously approved sending the amendment to voters. Large law firms are launching special work groups to help advise clients interested in investing in one of the 8,700 areas around the U.S. selected for the Opportunity Zones Incentive Program. These pop-up teams are made up of tax, real estate, and private fund lawyers, and they're helping clients navigate some of the trickier issues around the new capital gains tax break. For more on these and other stories, visit news.bloombergtax.com. That's all for this week. I'm Siri Belusu. I'm Amanda Icone. Thanks for listening. Cases and Controversies is all about the Supreme Court. Oh, come on. You know, come on. Well, I agree with you. Be serious. We sit down with leading practitioners and scholars to break down these cases. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up so I didn't have to. uh... Oh, I didn't know that. That is interesting. I guess my imagination is running wild. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Tune in every week for our deep dive and sneak peek episodes wherever you get your podcasts. As always, check out the latest at (laughs) news.bloomberglaw.com. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.